1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. And this week, we are
0: bringing you part two of our two-part series from last season on the history of the swimsuit.
1: So without further ado, voila. Hello, and welcome back. And I say back because you are turning into part two. Of our two-part series on the history of the swimsuit so if you haven't already you may wish to begin with part one where we tracked the origins of the swimsuit in relation to the emergence of bathing and swimming culture as popular leisure activities during the 19th and early 20th centuries and as we did that we learned some things very quickly the
0: bathing suit was fraught with contention from its very beginnings First, the idea of women bathing in such close proximity to their male counterparts resulted in a wool bathing costume that covered them from neck to toe. But as social anxieties surrounding the co-mingling of the sexes swimming relaxed throughout the early 1900s and into the 1920s, so too did the bathing suit, becoming an androgynous two-piece ensemble in the 1920s that
1: literally got women arrested. And as we learned, women basically traded one social restraint for another. Because just as women's bodies were being released from these cumbersome, body-covering, wool swimsuits, the more functional, figure-revealing swimsuit is embraced by fashion designers and beauty pageant
0: culture. In other words, thus begins its association with unattainable beauty ideals and standards, which we are still exposed to, pun intended, and struggle (laughs) with today.
1: You're definitely getting fined for that one, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, all of that, and we didn't even make it into the 1930s in part one. So that's kind of where we're going to start.
0: I know. We still have a lot of ground to cover, or in the case of the swimsuit, uncover. In part one, we discussed the origin stories of swimwear giants such as Speedo and Janssen. And by 1930, Jansen was the largest manufacturer of swimwear in the entire world. But they had a lot of competition from companies such as Catalina, Coal of California, and BVD, to name a few. And while the high fashion designers were certainly producing swimwear during this period, it was really these ready-to-wear manufacturers that were the driving force behind the industry, producing new designs and innovations and fit and technology, and it was almost out of a competition with one another— they were instrumental in not only popularizing and disseminating fashionable swimwear to the general public, but being at the forefront of setting
1: new trends. For instance, in 1931, Jansen introduced the quote-unquote shoulder, which was their strap-optional answer to a new fad for sunbathing. And there were many versions of these types of convertible swimsuits. There was one that was low-cut um, in the back, and it was the so-called evening gown back. So this is very much a thing. Um, they were quite fashionable. And some of the other suits had cutouts at the sides. I mean, come on. Wh- what's that going to do to your tan lines? It's <laughs> only going to create more, right? I do see these on the beach still today. I know. And I'm always very curious about that. I'm like, what happens when you take that off? <laughs>
0: I think it's the point maybe. I don't know. I very much remember being a teenager and putting a heart sticker on my stomach so that the sun would give me a tattoo. So maybe it's somewhere around there. <laughs> <laughs> um, both men and women were finding all kinds of ways to show some skin during this period. In fact, the 1929 Soviet film, The Man with the Movie Camera, it documents everyday life in several Soviet cities, and one scene in particular includes a very crowded public beach, where men are walking around shirtless, and women, well, more than a few of them are wearing midriff-bearing two-pieces. So these two-piece styles, while the most revealing in history up to this point, do not reveal the navel, but rather sit at the waist.
1: And 1929 was a very important year, Cass, because it also marks the stock market crash and the very beginnings of the Great Depression. And all of this was felt, these repercussions of this event were felt the world over and continued throughout the 1930s. So in the face of this, and actually in many ways because of it, this period also happens to be the quote-unquote golden age of Hollywood cinema. This is a time synonymous with incredibly extravagant sets and happened by the most enchanting of movie stars. And all of this over-the-topness was kind of meant to bewitch and distract audiences who were going through these really difficult times. Um, I mean, just look at any production by uh, Busby Berkeley, for instance, and he's really a shining example of the sheer excess and extravagance of some of these productions. His films could include um, hundreds of dancers um, in executing these incredibly complex choreographies.
0: Or in the case of his 1933 film, Footlight Parade, he used swimmers, hundreds of swimmers. This is a period when Hollywood really comes into its oak glamour image, and part and parcel to that image is the swimsuit. So Footlight Parade features this precisely choreographed water ballet with a chorus of skimbly-clad women diving in and out of this huge, giant Olympic-sized pool. Mind you, this was built inside a studio, and it's shot underwater and from above, And the women move into any number of mesmerizing shapes, and it all ends with this human waterfall. So it's really a feast for the eyes. And this entire time, they are wearing these glittering mesh swimsuits that really leave little to the imagination. They only cover what was absolutely necessary. And yes, you can find
1: this on YouTube. (laughs) So the influence of film on the popular psyche during this period cannot be underscored enough. And films could also be incredibly important vehicles for popularizing fashion designs. When Dorothy L'Amour appeared in the 1936 film Jungle Princess wearing a strapless sarong-like costume, manufacturers were then inspired by the film to create their own. So there was this very much a symbiotic relationship going on between Hollywood, what was being seen on the screen, and also swimwear manufacturers.
0: There certainly was. And it was during this period that ready-to-wear manufacturers negotiated contracts with film studios to cross-promote their products. So these relationships, also known as promotional tie-ins, are all too familiar to us today, think any celebrity endorsement. But this was still a relatively new phenomenon at this period. The era of celebrities on the cover of fashion magazines, mind you, that doesn't begin until the 1980s.
1: All right. So your favorite actress, such as Joan Blundell, who was the star of the aforementioned Footlight Parade, seeing her modeling in a Janssen swimwear ad was a genius act of marketing on both sides. Warner Brothers is getting exposure for their star actress in a widely circulated fashion magazine, and Janssen has now added a touch of glamour and cachet to their otherwise functional attire. So, it was all around a win-win for everybody involved. Indeed. But, don't you worry, Cass. Those Hollywood tie-ins were not exclusive just to women, right? Nope. Some of the gentleman stars were were taking part too. Um, for instance, Dick Powell. Um, he he would model did some work for um Jansen as well.
0: Oh, you mean those ads of Dick modeling the Jansen short topper, April?
1: <laughs> okay. You're gonna have to fill me in on that one because <gasps> I don't know what a short topper is.
0: I don't think most of us do today, but rather (laughs) serendipitously, actually, a friend of mine, Jessica Pusher, just posted a version of this swimsuit, which dates to 1932 on her Instagram. She's the collections manager of the Costume and Textile Collection at the Chicago History Museum, which is incredible, by the way. And this swimsuit is in their collection. So the topper is composed of a tank top with cutout sides, and it's attached to these belted shorts with a zipper. So as the advertised zip from suit to trunks. So by 1932 torso covering is optional people. Don't threaten these wares with a good time.
1: <laughs> you know, and else was optional in the 1930s? I am itching to know April well, you're not going to have to itch anymore because um, wool has some competition now in the swimwear industry. Uh, while this material is certainly still being used in swimwear in the 1930s and the 1940s, it's no longer the end-all and be-all. So, at this time, we start to see inexpensive, non-absorbent, rubberized swimwear, and this came onto the market as early as 1932. It was affordable, But it wasn't that strong of a material, and it tore rather easily. So luckily, an inventive new material known as Lastex was patented in 1931, and it effectively revolutionizes the swimsuit. Because it's a yarn that's composed of a rubber core, therefore it had an elastic quality to it, and this finally meant that your swimsuit could retain its shape after being wet for an extended period of time. And this was no small innovation. When you look at all the images of the saggy wool swimsuits from the previous decades. Last
0: text, which was used in both knitted and woven fabrics, introduced the element of controllability into swimwear for the first time. So where the body had been the dictator of the shape of the swimsuit for the last 30 years, now the swimsuit could be used to mold and shape the body with supportive understructures such as built-in bras and girdles. So we're starting to go backwards a little bit here, April. <laughs> it's during the 1930s that you start seeing ads for products such as Janssen's new wisp weight of 1938. Quote, it's almost incredible that a swimsuit could be so firm and its girdle fit. Truly
1: a wisp of weight with pounds of figure control. And figure controlling swimwear was not the exclusive domain of women either. It was, of course, not quote-unquote manly to openly advertise this for men. Um, So while materials such as the Janssen stitch fabric meant figure control for women, for men it ensured, quote, trim athletic smartness. And in 1938, Janssen was also producing its revolutionary zip hitch swim trunk for men, as we mentioned earlier with its, quote, masculine-ribbed fabric of Jansen spun wool. So, topless, muscular men have now become a staple in Jansen advertising, really kind of confirming that the nude male torso is officially here to stay in terms of swimwear from now on, mm-hmm. as were swim trunks, which continue to evolve in various styles and versions throughout the next few decades. Well, we
0: are reaching the end of the 1930s, and you know what that means, April? I do.
1: That means World War II, which started in 1939.
0: So not exactly a period associated with the playfulness of swim culture and swimwear, but the two are inextricably linked nonetheless, and we will find out more about what that means after a brief sponsor break. The demands of World War II meant that materials once available in abundance were now in short supply. Economy and frugality were emphasized above all else. So, for the swimmer industry, that meant that the availability of innovative materials such as Lastex were especially sparse. So, as we mentioned, Lastex had a rubber core and rubber was incredibly important to the war effort. So, for instance, a military airplane used a half ton of rubber in its construction, whereas a battleship used 75 tons. And maybe even more interesting for our intents and purposes here today was that 32 pounds of rubber was required for each person in the military
1: used in their clothing, footwear, and other equipment. I also think it's important to note that at this time, rubber was entirely sourced from nature, originally coming from a tree native to South America. That tree was later successfully transplanted to Southeast Asia, and it was from Southeast Asia where the United States had been sourcing its rubber up until World War II because at that time they kind of got cut off from this supply. So this situation is what led to the creation of the United States synthetic rubber program through which the very first synthetic rubbers were created during the war and this really kind of forever changed the face of the rubber industry. And Cass, I don't know if you know this, but today 70% of the rubber used in manufacturing is synthetic, but I digress.
0: I did not know that, actually. I actually, (laughs) for the longest time, did not know rubber was ever not synthetic. So thank you for that tidbit of information. Mm -hmm. So everyone did their part for the war effort during World War II, and that included the fashion industry. The promotion of economy and patriotism were omnipresent in fashion advertising, and that extended to swimwear. So one Cole of California advertisement from 1943 features an Army Air Force's parachuter next to a model wearing a swimsuit. These are two separate photographs juxtaposed next to each other. And they're above a slogan that says they wear the same label. Quote, today we give precedence to parachutes, making only unlimited number of Cole swim and play fashions. If you buy less because you invest in the best and then give it the best of care, you will want a swimsuit bearing this label of perfection
1: 1945 might have marked the end of the war, but it proved to be the beginning of the nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. As if the United States' nuclear bombs had not proved effective enough during the war, the military intended to hold on to its dominance in this arena, and it began a series of nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands, which is an island country in the Pacific Ocean near the equator. And the name of the specific sites of those tests, which were on an atoll or a ring-shaped coral reef, has hence been permanently emblazoned into the public's consciousness, but perhaps not for reasons that you may think. Right, April. So that the U.S. government
0: detonated 23 nuclear weapons on the atoll over the course of 12 years— And irreparably displaced its inhabitants and effectively destroyed their culture in the process is not what April is referring to. Not. These upsetting (laughs) connotations of this particular word are largely overshadowed by one fashion and swimwear-related development. And if you have not already guessed it, we are speaking about the bikini.
1: That's right. Uh, we've said it before on the show, and we will just keep repeating it over and over because fashion does not happen in a vacuum. It's just there responding to the world around it or, or seeking to profit from it, in this case, I would yeah. argue. <laughs> um, just four days after the first test of the atomic bomb at Bikini Atoll, it made international headlines. And a gentleman, Louis Riard a French mechanical engineer turned fashion designer, launched his Bikini, the smallest swimsuit the world had ever seen. I'm
0: going to go out on a limb here, like you just said, and bet that Louis adopted the name Bikini in the days prior to its debut in an effort to capitalize on the publicity surrounding these nuclear tests.
1: Yeah. And it's been suggested that he hoped his swimsuit would be just as explosive as the atomic bomb.
0: Ah. (laughs) Well,
1: whatever (laughs) the reasoning, I'm not entirely
0: convinced, April, that he even needed the extra publicity because this garment— was revealing and scandalous with a capital S. It was destined to make the news. I mean, it was made of newspaper-printed fabric after all.
1: Yeah, and Louis said that he was inspired to design his swimsuit after seeing women sunbathers in the beaches of Saint-Tropez rolling down their high-waisted swimsuit bottoms in order to catch a bigger tan. So his bikini, which was essentially four triangles of fabric, two for the breasts and one for the front and the back of the bottom, this reduced that excess material substantially, making that rolling down of the, of the waist, um, you know, not necessary anymore. And there had certainly been two-piece swimsuits up to this point, but Louis bikini was by far the most revealing. It was cut high up on the hip, and the swimsuit bottom revealed the wearer's navel for the first time. Oh, my. So scandalous was
0: this display of skin that Louis could not find a fashion model to wear it. So instead, he hired 19-year-old Micheline Bernardini, a new dancer from the Casino de Paris, to debut it at a beauty pageant at the Molitor swimming pool in Paris. And you don't have to imagine what the swimsuit looks like because there is, of course, video footage of the event on YouTube. Very brief but telling clip. And we will also post a picture of it on our Instagram, so keep your eyes open for that. The images of Micheline smiling, poised, holding the packaging for the swimsuit, which is a small box not bigger than her hand. So in fact, so proud was Louis of the scantiness of this swimming attire that he maintained that only a swimsuit that could be drawn through a wedding ring could ever be called a true bikini.
1: It should be noted that while Louis can be credited with giving the swimsuit its staple name, he is not alone responsible for this design. In fact, it would appear that he was inspired To such skimpiness only after the debut of a similar style of swimsuit by the French fashion designer Jacques Haim, who released it the month prior. Jacques too found synergy between the revealing swimsuit and the nuclear weapons that were in the news at the time because he called his two-piece swimsuit the Atom. The story goes that
0: while Jacques' swimsuit did not show the wearer's belly button, he was quite proud of its skimpiness nonetheless, and he hired a Skyrider, which is a small airplane that writes in smoke, to write the world's smallest bathing suit across the sky. So when Louis debuted his bikini only a few short weeks later, he too sent skywriters out over the French Rivera with the slogan, smaller than the smallest bathing suit in the world. So, an element of competition is clearly at play here, April.
1: Oh, yeah. They're just trying to one-up each other, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, despite all of the advertising and the shock and the awe um, over the bikini's debut, it would take a couple of years for the style to really catch on, appearing first on the beaches of Europe and then later in America. Although, um, by 1949, it appears to have become somewhat of a staple Or a threat, depending on how you look at it, (laughs) to prompt one journalist at Life magazine to write a scathing article about the bikini called The Trouble with the Bikini, in which the author blatantly and unapologetically body shames women who dare to bear this much flesh.
0: His arguments, or blatant lies, I should say, against and about the bikini, include this idea that the swimsuit would bear, quote, stripes of putty-colored flesh once shielded from sun by orthodox swimsuits, end quote.
1: Oh, and that the tops will fall down at the slightest provocation, such as exhaling. And he also goes on to write that the bottoms ride up and ride down to, quote, show unattractive areas. But... The most offensive, and these are all illustrated with photographic evidence, mind you, in the magazine, Um, the most offensive was a caption under the final image of these two really beautiful young women. This caption was so offensive that it prompted one reader to write to the magazine in protest, and his letter was published in the next issue under a correction.
0: Sirs, in connection with an article on bikini bathing suits, you published a picture of my 15-year-old daughter, Billie June, whose professional name as a model and actress is June McCall, with a caption stating, Abdominal scars are revealed. This has caused many women whose surgeons have left their stomachs looking like old golf balls to shun the suits. My daughter has no abdominal scars, and I cannot understand how many appeared in the picture. Magazine's response, Life's Apologies, The apparent scar was caused by creases on the negative.
1: What the (laughs) H, life? (laughs) Wow. Okay. Um, For one, this journalist is obviously so threatened uh, about the idea of the bikini that he's just making up full-on lies about it. Yep. You know, and, and secondly, you know, talking about these girls' bodies in this way, it's outrageous.
0: People certainly agreed with you, April, don't worry, because many people wrote in defending the bikini, and I was quite surprised that Life published these protests, which included one by M.M. McGuinn. Quote, for six hours, I have looked and looked and have yet to see the unattractive areas you say are disclosed by this naughty bikini. Well, we agree.
1: Well, I want to know why he's looking at it for six hours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this outcry over the bikini might sound all too familiar because in part one of our history of the swimsuit, there was a very similar outcry happening during the 19-teens and the 1920s when the controversial tunic and short swimsuit was becoming more and more popular. And then the bikini comes along 20 years later and makes that two-piece look like a conservative potato sack, basically.
0: Yeah, it's getting all of this um, outcry, et cetera, et cetera. It's getting a little redundant at this part and old, but we still have many years to go with that, I suppose. So in 1951, the New York Times concluded in an article that the evolution of the swimsuit was over. It was done. After the bikini, the journalist wrote, it does not seem reasonable that it will get larger, and it obviously cannot get smaller. It is possible that the suit is one of the few things in the world which has reached the end of its revolution or evolution. And throughout the 1950s, this certainly did appear to be true. In fact, swimwear, like fashion itself, almost appears to be regressing to a bygone era. The so-called new
1: look of the post-World War II era was lauded as a breath of fresh air after the clothing rationing that had dominated the fashion scene during the war. But for women, it also meant a return to artificiality in fashion that had not been seen since before World War I, even. Most famously promoted by designer Christian Dior, this celebrated, highly structured silhouette supported in by cinched in waist, padded hips, and featured flared skirts. And in 1955, Christian Dior brought his signature style to swimwear with a very short-lived collaboration with Cole of California, a very rare partnership between the haute couturier and a swimwear manufacturer.
0: Yeah, so while film stars such as Sophia Loren and Brigitte Bardot certainly helped to popularize the bikini throughout the 1950s, women and thus swimsuit manufacturers were still very much favoring one-piece and waist-high two-piece swimsuits throughout the decade. So was the New York Times right then, April? Had the swimsuit reached the end of its evolution? We will find out the answer to that question after a short sponsor break. Welcome back. Join in if you know the song. She wore an itsy-bitsy teeny-weeny yellow polka Polka dot bikini bikini (laughs) that she wore for the first time today. This 1961 song performed by Brian Hyland has immortalized the bikini in the popular imagination for over four decades. But it actually very much reveals the societal anxieties still surrounding the bikini at the dawn of the new decade... You listen closely, he says, she was afraid to come out in the open and so a blanket around her she wore. She was afraid to come out in the open and so she sat bundled up on the shore.
1: Well, The 1960s may have professed conservatism at the dawn of the decade, but I think you, especially, because you are an expert on this subject, know what happens by the middle of the decade, and that would be the youthquake.
0: Youthquake. Oh, you mean when a new generation of young ready-to-wear designers dethrone the prestigious haute couturiers as the makers and shakers of fashion. This is the swinging 60s after all, a decade that threw tradition to the wind in favor of the exciting, the daring, the bold, and the young the era of rock and roll, unhindered self-expression, civil rights, women's rights, the birth control pill, the sexual revolution, and Rudy Gernreich's monokini. Mm-hmm. By all standards, a one-piece swimsuit April, except for the very small fact that it exposed the breasts. It did. <laughs> of course, that 1950s New York Times journalist could never have conceived a swimwear evolving past the bikini April because how could his brain have comprehended an era when nudity was an option in a swimsuit?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, then again, not much was off limits in the late 1960s. <laughs> um, that era was a complete breeding ground for experimentation and fashion. And Gernreich was one of these designers who was leading the way, Um, and he shocked the world with his monokini in 1964. Um, I would say that, to me, um, in my opinion, one of the most iconic images in fashion history is this image of Peggy Moffat, Gernreich's model and muse, um, which appeared in the pages of Women's Word Daily, Um, and it was shot by her husband, uh, William Claxton. And she is modeling the monokini in the image. And it's a high-waisted black swimsuit. It's really kind of tight and molded over Peggy's body. And two thin straps extend from the waist up over her shoulders between her bare breasts. And in an interview years later, Moffat recalled that Playboy, Playboy magazine, actually offered her $17,000 at the time to publish her husband's photo of her, but she refused. She said, quote, I turned it down as unthinkable. I don't want to exploit women any more now than I did in 1964. Statement hasn't changed. That suit is still about freedom and not display, end quote.
0: Yeah, and Gernreich believed strongly in the freedom of sexual expression, and it was very much at the center of his design theory. In 1969, he told Time magazine that the monokini was a natural development growing out of all the loosening up, the reevaluation of values that's going on. There is now an honesty hang-up, and part of this is not hiding the body. It stands for freedom." And in another interview, he said, every girl I knew was offended by the dirty little boy attitude of the American male toward the American bosom. I was aware that the great masses of the world would find the topless shocking and immoral. I couldn't help feel the implicit hypocrisy that made something in one culture immoral and in another perfectly acceptable.
1: And Grunreich reportedly sold somewhere around 3,000 of these swimsuits, um, but only a handful of them were ever worn in public or... Uh, I should clarify, at least known to have been worn in public. Um, one of the most famous examples was worn by dancer Carol Doda at the Condor Nightclub in June of 1964. And supposedly, this is what ushered in the new era of topless nightclubs in the United States. Um, and we also know another one of these uh, monochinis was worn by Tony Lee Shelley to a beach in Chicago in July of that same year. We know this because, not surprisingly, she was arrested.
0: As we have seen over and over (laughs) and
1: over again throughout the swimsuit's history. (laughs) It seems like we keep harping on these certain themes, but they just really do keep coming up over and over and over again.
0: Well, any drastic new change in women's fashion and especially the swimsuit, especially one involving nudity, is going to be met with remonstrations. And this was no exception. However, for the sake of being repetitive, I'm not going to really go into details here about all the people who had a problem with this swimsuit. I would rather talk about what a visionary and innovator Rudy was. Rudy envisioned a world unbounded by convention and these stale gender codes and regulations, and he favored one that celebrated the natural human form. And it was a vision he extended to the clothing women and men wore. In fact, he envisioned a future where there was no distinctions between the way the sex is dressed.
1: In 1970, in a five-page spread for Life magazine, Gernreich shared his hopes for fashions in the new decade, a time when, quote, fashion will go out of fashion, end quote, and men and women will dress exactly alike. He goes on to say, quote, clothing will not be identified as male or female, and the focus of fashion would change from the clothing to the body itself. Quote, we will train the body to grow beautifully rather than cover it to produce beauty. Unquote. And any of you listeners who might have listened to our Elizabeth Hawes episode, this is indeed the one and the same Rudy Gernreich that she became friends with over the topic of these, you know, gender-free fashions. While Gernreich's vision of men and women in matching miniskirts did not translate into mainstream fashion narrative, hmm. one particular androgynous style did. Ten years after the debut of his monokini, Gernreich took the swimsuit even further— But unlike the monokini, which revealed the breasts, this swimsuit revealed the butt.
0: Thong, the thong, thong,
1: thong. (laughs) You are really into singing today.
0: There's so many songs around women's (laughs) undergarments and swimsuits, apparently. (laughs) I knew I was very surprised, very surprised, actually, when I learned that the thong, that oh-so-uncomfortable underwear staple of today, it found its origins in a 1974 swimsuit designed by Rudy Gernreich. And by 1975, Gernike's thong was being marketed and sold as ladies' underwear by the American company Lily of France. But first, it was a swimsuit and a unisex swimsuit at that that he produced in 1974. And he revealed the inspirations for his radical new design in an interview with Anne Hollander for New York Magazine in 1974.
1: Wait, are we talking about the Anne Hollander? The yes. one and the same Anne Hollander? Yes. Oh, cool. Okay, we get a geek out here for a moment. Yes, please do. uh, Just explain to who Anne is. Uh, She is really a pioneer in the field of fashion history, especially with her work in in its relation to art. And her book, Seeing Through Clothes, is a must-read, and it's really a foundation text that that any um, fashion history program is going to have you start with. So run out there and grab it. I'm sure you can buy used copies of it on Amazon. Absolutely. And I had—
0: It was just interesting. It was awesome. I didn't know she wrote for New York Magazine. So you can imagine my surprise when I find this article labeled Thong with her um, name under it. So two fashion luminaries are engaging in this interview, which is exciting. And Gernreich really shares with Hollander um, where his idea for the Thong came from and it extended back to his early childhood in Vienna. Gernreich was Austrian, but had fled to Los Angeles with his mother in the 30s after the Nazi occupation of his country. But as a child, Gernreich remembered watching young laborers swimming carefree and at ease in a public pool after a hard day's work, and they were wearing only a small, self-fashioned loincloth. And this image really stuck with Gernreich all these years later, but he was only inspired to make it a reality out of a political protest. There was a recent law enacted in California that banned nude public swimming. And so this was his way of um, responding
1: to that ban. Quote, he contrived a compromise between liberty and law, wrote Hollander. She goes on to say, the thong clings tightly between the exposed buttocks in the back, but covers the appropriate areas in front, like a skinky bib, giving the body virtually nude rear and sparsely clad front, end quote. And Gernweig told Hollander that he was a, quote, champion of the profound human desire to be naked in the water. He believed that there was nothing shameful about nakedness. It is our most natural state as humans, after all. And I actually think this
0: is where we are going to end our history of the swimsuit. Because, April, where else is there for the swimsuit to go without disappearing entirely? Gernweig brought the swimsuit full circle. In fact, by evolving the swimsuit to its next stage, he has almost completely reversed its evolution. A garment that was originally created to clothe the naked body has now been reduced to only the most bare of coverings. The only place left to go now is to
1: be completely nude. Oh, and people have certainly gone there. <laughs> Nude beaches are very much alive and well, um, as are the social anxieties surrounding women's bodies. Um, and we are still continuing to have these conversations, and we'll keep on harping at it until something changes. Absolutely. But you know what
0: conversations have been happening a lot more lately, April? And I know you'll agree with me on this, is mm-hmm. body positivity and inclusivity. Yeah. Today, there are many women of all different shapes, sizes, and ages who are embracing the swimsuit in all its shapes and forms. And they're they're really sharing it. They're photographing themselves. It's all over the internet and Instagram. Women reclaiming the swimsuit as a garment that can be worn by everyone and not just the acceptable body type dictated by the fashion industry.
1: Yeah, and even the fashion industry itself is making changes. You know, for one, the multi-billion dollar international swimsuit market now caters to every woman, accommodating all sizes and religions, um, from that itty-bitty, teeny-weeny yellow polka dot bikini that you referenced to the Lycra swimsuit company that also accommodates full body and modesty swimwear for Muslim women. There's There really is, you know, an option out there for everyone now, it seems like.
0: And there are models who are helping to change our perceptions of the body as well. Validating the swimsuit as an option for everyone, no matter your shape or size. In 2016, a 27-year-old Ashley Graham made headlines as the first plus-size, aka average-size woman, to grace the cover of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And Graham dedicated the cover to all the women out there who never felt that they were beautiful enough, who never felt like they were skinny enough, and who never felt like they were going to be able to be represented in society like this.
1: Also, just this year, the Miss America pageant announced its ending of the swimsuit portion of its program. Finally. um, Which really had been kind of... Yeah, the central (laughs) feature of the pageant since its origins in the 1920s. That's, you know, really kind of where it started. Um, And the official Miss America Twitter account shared a video of a white bikini going up in a puff of smoke with the hashtag, bye-bye bikini. (laughs) (laughs) And they they went on to write, quote, we will no longer judge our candidates by their outward physical appearance. Um, This was written by the chairperson of the pageant, Gretchen Carlson, um, who also revealed that. This decision was made in part due to the power of the Me Too movement that was driving um, a lot of these changes that they felt necessary. She said, quote, we're experiencing a cultural revolution in our country with women finding the courage to stand up and have their own voices heard on many issues. Miss America is proud to evolve as an organization and join this empowerment movement. Good for you guys.
0: Absolutely. And I hope other organizations are sitting up and really taking notice of this because this is a really powerful time as more and more women find the courage to stand up, to speak up, to reclaim the right to their bodies and their lives and their power, really. The swimsuit might have a controversial history, but it really in many ways has brought us to this moment today where listener, our dress listeners, myself, April, we all have a right to say what we wear, where we wear it, how we wear it. It's actually a really exciting time to be in, and I hope you Dress listeners consider your own power, strength, and courage next time
1: you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. And we love hearing from you, so if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us
0: always on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will always find images accompanying each week's episode. At dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle, and you can, of
1: course, follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye.
0: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.